Hi everyone, Gareth here. Just to let you know that if you'd like to support the production of the Music Room podcast, you can. Just head to musicroompodcast.uk slash support or click the link in the show notes. Okay, on with the show. Hi, I'm Gareth, a composer for TV and an audio producer for podcasts like this. Like many others, I was lucky enough to have a positive music education. I'm extremely grateful that all that support led me to what I do today. For me, the music room was that place growing up where all the musos gathered like moths to a flame, a place to be with other creative-minded people. So let's go back there and spend some time in gratitude for all the people who've helped us get started. Welcome to the music room. This week in the music room. In the cafeteria, somehow I managed to meet Klaus Dullinger and then got invited to see one of the recording sessions. Wow. That was prior to Giorgio Moroder coming on board doing all the electronics. It was just the orchestral recordings of the, the score. Hello and welcome to The Music Room, the show where I chat with professional composers, songwriters and musicians to find out who or what inspired them in their formative years. I also ask each guest to leave an item and a piece of advice in The Music Room for others to find. And so far we've had some really inspiring items and advice. I really urge you, if you haven't, to go back and check out the previous episodes, which you can at www.musicroompodcast.uk or by just going to your podcast app and hitting the subscribe or follow button there. That's the easiest, really. And if you've heard other episodes and like what you heard, if I could trouble you for a positive rating and review, that's really the stuff that keeps independent podcasts like this going. In this episode, you're going to learn about what it's like to be a kid in Tel Aviv in Israel, to follow the journey of composer Frank Ilfman from playing the trombone to messing around with synths, to finding himself on a scoring stage in Moscow. And if you hang around, Frank will be leaving an item of his own in the music room and that all-important advice. First, though, music stories. In this music stories section, I'm going to stray a little, I think, as I want to give a big shout out to the members of the Music Room community over on Facebook. If you're a composer, songwriter or musician and you listen to the show and you like meeting other composers, songwriters and musicians, then come and join us. I'm trying to build a positive and supportive community there, a community that helps upwards as well as downwards and and sideways. So wherever you are in your career, hopefully you'll find it useful. If you're not on Facebook, you can still join in on Twitter and Instagram, but you have to hang your hat on one hook with these things, and I found that Facebook is where all the musos are. All the links are in the show notes. So, (laughs) I asked the Music Room community on Facebook the question, I've asked all my guests so far, what's your earliest memory of music? Here are some of the responses. Mike Langley says... Dancing around to the ballet of the chicks in their shells by Tomita in about 1979. Sam Pierce says, being sent up to the mezzanine floor of my first primary school, age seven, and there were brass instruments in their cases laid out all over the floor. We were encouraged to open all the cases up and choose one we liked the look of. Brilliant. Richard Chance, pinky and perky on vinyl. (laughs) I mean, what's not to like? Uh, Richard went on and said, it might be the reason I'm not wired correctly. Well, Richard, 
who gets to decide how we should be wired. I think you're doing just fine. Uh, Miriam Sterlich says, One that really stuck with me was going to see a concert at Wembley with my family. I was 10. One of my favourite conductors was up there, and somewhere in the middle of the show, his score fell to the ground, and my parents encouraged me to walk down to the stage and pick it up for him. I ended up meeting his daughter in summer camp in the US many years later. Wow, random. Brilliant. Thank you, Miriam. John Wright. My dad. Uh, I'm shouting that because it has an exclamation mark. I have vivid memories of sitting in what we would call the front room, in air quotes, and listening to dad's records. He would get very passionate about the canons in Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture or mimic the crooning of old blue eyes, Frank Sinatra. We would also listen to the goon shows on tape and laugh a lot. Such fond memories. I know I inherited my passion for music from him. I love that. Thank you, Mike, Sam, Richard, Miriam and John. Your links are now in the show notes to this episode and we'll go in the next Sam Boutique newsletter. Link is also in the show notes. Frank Ilfman studied piano and trombone at the renowned Jaffa Conservatorium of Music in Tel Aviv and as a teenager was playing lead trombone with the Tel Aviv Dixieland Band. Fast forward to today, and Frank has scored numerous TV dramas, documentaries and feature films, including the hit black comedy horror Big Bad Wolves, which saw him win the coveted Saturn Award for Best Original Music in 2014, ahead of John Williams, Howard Shaw and Danny Elfman. I recommend watching the recent action thriller he scored, Gunpowder Milkshake, starring Karen Gillan, Angela Bassett, Lena Headey and Michelle Yeoh. So if you're ready, let's find out what Frank is up to now, and let him take us back in time to find out how it all began. First, though, I want to play you something. Frank recently released a track to help raise funds for the Voices of Children Charitable Foundation in Ukraine. The link to the Bandcamp page where you can buy the track is in the show notes, and I'll let Frank tell you how it came about. This is Under the Sheltering Sky by Frank Ilfman.
Frank Hilfman, welcome to the Music Room. Ah, thanks for having me. My pleasure. You're very, very welcome. Uh, in the intro there, Frank, we heard your new track, Under the Sheltering Sky, for Standby Ukraine, with all proceeds from sales going to the Voices of Children Foundation. Yeah. How did it come about, and what was your point of inspiration for that? Well, I, I think, you know, you, you hear a lot of that, and you see a lot of it in the news, and it's, it's something that's, um, especially when it comes to children, it's something that's quite upsetting. And, you know, I wanted to do something, at least, you know, give some support in some way, and, but not just me making a donation uh, to a charity. I wanted to do something that, you know, will, will also create a bit more awareness, hmm. A, for the foundation, I guess, and uh, also for, you know, people to know that war can create a very kind of horrific impact on children, especially, you know, and that's our, that's our next and next generations, you know, and when you... I mean, for me, somebody who grew up in Israel and you grew up in sometimes in those kind of similar environments and obviously in Israel, you, you know, we have terror attacks and we have, you know, you have to be in the army because it's mandatory for a while. So, you know, you go through all these stuff. So you kind of, you're aware how life is, you know, to be sometimes under threat. So for me, it was, I think I wanted to do something that will create awareness as well as support the foundation besides, you know, having this. And, and I thought the best way I can do is, you know, is, is actually release this piece of music that I wrote uh, a while back as a, you know, as a kind of personal outlet as we do. And uh, it wasn't meant to be released in any form. It was just something I recorded one time and kept it in the drawer, but I thought, you know, it has an emotional impact and I thought, you know, like we do sometimes in films, we, we create emotions. I thought that would be the right time to give it a certain identity and, and hook it with a good cause. So, yeah, it kind of all fell into place in that sense. Yeah, and it, it certainly sounds like an emotional piece as well. Mm. So the link to that, I know you've got it out on all the streaming platforms. I'll put the link to the Bandcamp yeah. version in the show notes. Um, yeah, because that... I mean, Bandcamp, they take uh, a percentage and then through the PayPal, sadly. But yeah. yeah, everything after that goes directly to the foundation. Fantastic. So yeah, the Bandcamp is always uh, better because Apple and Amazon and stuff is, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Better to buy the track. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Now, before we go back in time, I'd like to touch on a movie you scored, Gunpowder Milkshake. Mm. Which I think has the vibrant color of John Wick, the quirkiness of Tarantino, such an amazing female-led cast. Karen Gillan, Lena Headey, Michelle Yeoh, Angela Bassett, with uh, Paul Giamatti being brilliant as always. I noticed Enyo's Harp by Frank Ilfman in the credits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It must have been a lot of fun to make that. Yeah, it's, it's actually, funny enough, it's a sample of the original Kimbassan that was used on the Westerns and all these kind of 70s wow. music. So originally, when we did the score... My plan was to go to Studio Forum in, in Rome and record the instrument and um, some of the other kind of organs that they had that were used in all these movies. But then we had the lockdown and everything right when we were doing that. So there was no, we couldn't just travel, we couldn't do anything. So I had somebody sample, making a sample of it and stuff. So yeah, that's, that's Enya's heart. I mean, it's not a harpsichord, but it's just the name that we gave it. But it's the Kimbellum that we used. And we used the harpsichord with that as well. And that, you released a video, didn't you, to um, 
there was a bowling alley fight scene. Yeah, which I thought was just brilliant. Yeah, it was it was a good fun that one. Yeah, it was a hard scene to do because it's part of writing the music for Gunpowder was the idea was that a lot of the cues would be almost like a needle drop, and that's I think part of the almost Tarantino references in in some way. Yeah. So you actually score stuff to picture, but it actually feels more as a needle drop track than actually a score, which was the hardest thing to do because then how do you adapt things, tempo changes, bar changes, and still make it sound like a, just like a track within. And I think one, that was, I think, probably one of the hardest cues that we dealt with because we couldn't find a, a proper temp for that one, for the fight scene. We knew it's going to be some sort of a rock temp because that's more or less the, I think, the BPM that we had on. They were used some songs and some, I think, some music cues from some various films, but nothing seems to kind of glue in, even with editing, to that scene. And then when I did the cue right before it, which was a very kind of spaghetti western type um, standoff, and you can see it like in the images as well, so it's a lot of it lend itself to that direction from the start. We started talking, okay, nothing really works, what can we do? It has to be something cool, rocky, catchy in, in a way. And that's where I thought like, well, we kind of just continue in the, that kind of Western motif and do something which is like almost ecstasy on gold-ish, combining all the instruments, but with a, you know, with a more rocky feel to it than like ecstasy of gold, which is, you know, that's a, a more of a score kind of track. And, and that kind of, you know, as soon as I start doing it, uh, even with the, with the kind of quick mock-up, it worked because it had that kind of comedic element to it. It had that action yeah. scene uh, rhythm uh, to it. And then the hard part was that it's how you do all these kind of small tempo changes and bar meter to align stuff. So, so you got all the hit points. But that was all written to picture, but it worked. It, we kind of managed to get it right. And it worked, yeah. It, was oh, it certainly fun. came out uh, rocky, catchy, and cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and that, the, the sad part, the original idea was that we'll create like a rock band and get them in the studio and then record the rock band as you would do with a rock band because that's my background as well. Mm. And um, we do that, and then we put the orchestra on top. But because of COVID and the lockdown and everything, yeah. uh, we had to do all the solo musician remotely at the time. And then when we, we, we did get to do the orchestra, we were limited with the amount of uh, players you would allow in the room. So we had to do a lot of sessions just to get, you know, that massive orchestra, yeah. but they had to be recorded separately with each section differently and yeah, doubling the musicians and so on. Yeah, it was a bit of yeah, a... Yeah, the big studios were having a certain amount of space between the chairs, yeah. weren't they? And it yeah. was yeah. really uh, a different way of doing things. I love to record everybody usually in the same room. I don't like to do each section separately. I always find it's better to have, especially, you know, with mm -hmm. winds and brass, with the tuning. And, and I think when everybody's in the room, everybody's playing, you know, it's a much better feel. And uh, we were only allowed, I think, about 50 players in, in one room. So it would be just like a few days of strings. And then, you know, we would then do doubling because we couldn't get, you know, more than 50 string players in a room. So we then would double, but what we do, and that's something that uh, Jeff Atmaji and the orchestrator did, he, he would write the doubling parts as a different part of the section. So you won't, you know, you're not just doing doubling, okay, you play it again on top of what you play. So the orchestration made it sound like instead of we had 50 players in the room, we had like 
80 players just as a string. So we have a huge mm. string section. And then we had a huge brass section. Um, we oh. had about, I think we had about eight horns. Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's two bus, Yeah. Two bass, basso, <laughs> three trumpets. Yeah. It was a huge brass section. And then, you know, winds and, and uh, yeah, all the singers and everything and percussions. So yeah, it was a, a long week of recordings. Uh, I finished watching it thinking I'd love to hear what you'd do with a Bond score. They always said it. (laughs) Hashtag Ilfman for Bond. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) It's out there. Funny enough, there is a cue there that's almost sound like it just by coincidence kind of came up. It's when Karen Gillian is in the library and she knows she has to fight the bad guys and they're about to come and she kind of opens the book and start taking out the, the gold bar and so on. So it sounds very Bondish, but it's just mm. by coincidence. Oh, but yeah, yeah, I'd love to do a Bond movie. That would oh, be good yeah. fun. Yeah. No, I, I just love the, uh, the the kind of blend of orchestral and sound design and synths. And, you know, I think you've got that balance right in the movie. Yeah, we, w- we wanted something that would be timeless, but mm. still feel a bit retro, but not too retro so it will be it'll fall in a certain niche to some degree. So I think it was good to have, you know, a lot of the old gear, but then have that kind of fresh sound. Because I think the film has that kind of, as you say, a bit of a retro feel, but it's still, you're not sure where it takes place. They all sound American, but it doesn't look necessarily like in America, but but they all sound Americans. So it has that timeless feel to it in some ways. And we wanted to keep that in, in, you know, so yeah, it's, it's an interesting mix of a lot of blending genres. And, you know, we were listening a lot in the, uh, when we started talking about the, the film, as we usually do, Nevot and I, we were kind of going over different bits of music. So we were going about, you know, listening to all John Barry stuff and Henry Mancini's and, you know, a lot of like uh, it, old Italian composers like uh, Stilvio Capriani and, uh, you know, Morricone and, and uh, you know, Nino Rota and all these kind of combination. And then you have Herman and Bernstein and all the, you know, so it's, yeah. it's a collage of stuff that we wanted to kind of play homage, but then still keep it quite fresh and, and updated. Brilliant. Yeah. I certainly think you achieved that. Yeah. So if you are ready, shall we go back in time? Frank, I'm interested to find out what the formative years of a young musician in Israel differs Mm. from the UK. So paint me a picture of your childhood in Tel Aviv and your first experiences with music. Well, I grew up in a family that my dad, during his teen, he used to, he studied violin. But then he stopped that during the Holocaust years and stuff. But he always loved music and my mom as well. None of them were then dealt with music or anything artistically but I grew up in a house where music was playing non-stop literally my dad used to listen to loads of classical stuff and opera there was a lot of rock and roll uh, playing around and and uh, all these kind of Brazilian bossa novas and so it was like a combination of like loads of stuff so I grew up in a way listening to loads of influences of music and I think somewhere it kind of you know made me want to do music we didn't have any musical instrument in the house or anything like that. And, um, you know, grew up in the 70s, so you listened to the Beatles as well and all that. I remember doing a, we did like a, one time, me and some friends, like we pretended to be the Beatles with playing 
tennis racks in school, just like, <laughs> like miming to their music. So I think it's something that was always there. And then when it was about, I would say about, yeah, six, six to eight years, I used to go with my dad seeing all these old movies, you know, Douglas Fairbanks and, you know, Seahawks and Robin Hood and then Westerns and all these kind of adventure movies and Westerns. And he got me an album, which was uh, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly and The Big Gun Down ah. uh, from RCA. Wow. And then uh, he had all these uh, uh, Hugo Montenegro albums, you know, that he did all the covers with his orchestra. And I really liked, you know, how melodic it was. And I remember then, you know, going to these movies, I started paying attention to all this music as well, because I started hearing that music from the films at home because my dad would buy the albums. And I think that's kind of like, I would say, where the first more or less seed kind of got planted. I wasn't like, okay, you know, I want to do film music when you were eight. And then as I grew, I wanted to, my parents saw that I was more interested in music, but we were, we were fairly poor, so we couldn't afford a piano. So we went to the Jaffa Conservatorium and said, and they said, you know, our kid wants to study music. Uh, what can he have? And uh, the only instrument they had that they would actually lend you was a trombone. So, so was the conservatorium, was that a full-time school or was it a Saturday school? Or? Oh, it was something that you do after school. You would go like oh, okay. uh, in, in the right. afternoon or evening. It was all yeah. the way up in Jaffa. So you take the bus and you go all the way there. Right. So the only thing they had was a trombone. That's the only thing they, they would lend you, yeah, some used trombone. So I said, yeah, great, because I wanted to study music. So I said, okay, I'll you know get the <laughs> trombone. So that's fine. So... You would have like, you know, trombone lessons with it, with one of the teachers. Um, they were all like jazz players. So you would, you would learn jazz and big band type stuff. And as part of, of your studies, you would join the, one of the bands, like the big, so I, we, playing trombone, uh, it was me and another kid. We were part of the, it was like the Tel Aviv Dixieland band. So we would pay all these kind of when the saints come home and all this kind of yeah. Dixie big band stuff. So I've done that for two or three years and I was, I started to become more interested in trying to arrange things than actually wanting to play the trombone. And then I got more interested in, you know, going through the eighties and like playing electronic music and things like that. I wanted to play, you know, keyboards and uh, piano and all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, again, we couldn't afford a piano. I kind of started playing. Before we had rehearsals, we had obviously Fender Rhodes and all that kind of stuff in the band. So I used to kind of dribble on that, playing chords, you know. So I used to start arranging things on the Fender Rhodes and then, you know, tell, you know, the people in the band, okay, let's play this. I think it was Thompson Twins and all these kind of songs that I used to hear the chords and say, okay, this is the chords, so play to do do this on the bass and you play this. And just arranging these kind of things and... Um, I think that's kind of like when I started doing these arrangements. And then one day our uh, band conductor came in and he saw them all playing and me kind of leading them, you know, as a band leader. And he goes, uh, oh, what was that? And I said, oh, just something that I, you know, kind of arranged and we, we did this kind of rocky thing. So he said, well, why don't you play, you know, play the piano instead of the trombone? Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so there were a few times where I kind of shifted to play, you know, the the I played the piano, Defender, just doing chords, like, because I wasn't a pianist or anything. I was, yeah, I was about 13 or so, so I've done some of that kind of big band arrangements. And 
at that time, we went to Germany and we went to this kind of film tour of Bavaria Studios and they were just doing the never ending story. Wow. So we got to see all the animatronics and all that, you know, oh, green skin, wow. green skin with Falcor and all the kind of stuff that they were doing. So oh. through that in the cafeteria, somehow I managed to meet Klaus Tullinger and then got invited to see one of the recording sessions. Wow. That was prior to Giorgio Moroder coming on board doing all the electronics. It was just yeah. the orchestral recordings of the, of, the, of the score. At 13? Yeah. Wow, that must have been a pretty mind-blowing moment for a 13-year-old. Yeah, because up until then, you know, i never seen, you know, film music being done or, you know, I used mm. to listen to a lot of it, but it was never like in my mind to see how it's been done or how this whole thing is made, you know. You, yeah. I, would, I would just think you would record it probably maybe as a band or something. I didn't have any clue about how that kind of music, you know, been created. I just knew how to arrange and get musicians together and play, but not about the whole going through recordings and what the whole process involves. So it was quite a, you know, eye opening. It's like, wow, okay. Mm. So, <laughs> you know, they're playing and, and you got the big screen in the back and reels and film and all that kind of stuff. That's kind of like when I think that whole thing started to, to kind of move in motion. But for me, it was still about doing, um, you know, I wanted to play keyboards because I was a big Howard Jones fan and, you know, and all the kind of 80s new wave bands. So I was getting involved more in that through my teens. So it was more about doing electronic music and rock music and play synth and all that. So then my parents, they got me one of these I don't think it was even a proper Farfisa organ. I think it was like a fake, you know, some fake <laughs> Italian made uh, Farfisa kind of a thing. And um, they got me a piano teacher. So, you know, the guy trying to teach you piano, but you don't have a proper piano to, to play. So you play on an organ, you know, and then you get it wrong. He would smack you with a ruler on the hand oh. saying, uh, you know, like those kind of, my whole kind of studying was like bent off of shape in a way. Not the most inspiring, is it? No, but what happened is that I started, you know, it would give me like homework, like, you know, put, you know, Mozart and Bach and all these kind of stuff. He was like one of these old Russian teachers, you know, like a heavy accent and like you play properly and you all that. But I didn't have piano, so I, you know, you have to learn how you play an organ as a, as a <laughs> you know, as a, as a piano. It's two different, you know, approaches, yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's what we could afford. And we had the space for it in a way. So I would try to kind of play what he would give me, but then I would just come up with my own kind of, you know, chords and melodies and so on. And then when he come, uh, he would come in and, uh, okay, play your uh, uh, exercises and stuff. You know, I would get it a lot of wrong. So he would always mark on the page, everything red, red, not good, not oh, good, not man. good, you know, and that. But then I'll say, um, he says, you know, but you didn't practice, so what's the point? I said, no, but listen, I wrote this and I would play something. And after a while, he just said, well, look, I don't think you need to learn to play the piano, just learn to write. I mean, he wasn't about, he didn't even say, you know, go go study composition or anything like that. For that, you would need to go to like a college and this. I mean, I was just like about 14, 15 at a time. In the conservatorium where I was, at, they weren't teaching uh, composition. It was just about playing and and then notation and stuff like that, but we weren't teaching uh, orchestration or 
composition. You know, that was like in really like a high college and stuff. They were yeah. super expensive, which there's no way we could have any, any afford anyway. So I was just, you know, I just kept on writing on these organs. And, and then later on through working in like, you know, as a piccolo in restaurants and all that, and a bit of here, a bit of there, we started, you know, buying a synth and buying a, maybe a sampler and stuff. And, you know, I was already, I had a, like a drum machine. So then I, it was me and a, another, another guitar player when we were, we were, uh, I think, 15. And uh, we would just go to all these like really dingy bars, which were on the kind of on the sea front line. There was a guitar player with an electric guitar and an amp and me with my, uh, I think it was, uh, I think it was a Juno 106. And uh, I think it was some Roland drum machine that would you just play and then I would do on the synth, I would just play like chords and stuff. And we just do all these, you know, song covers. So the guitar, the guy would sing and play guitar. I would do the chords and the drum machine. And uh, yeah, it would just like be a duo doing all these dingy bars as a duo yeah. and we would make money. And we, that's what we do, just play cover songs, you know, like as you would in the eighties. And then I got more involved in like doing um, electronic music. Cause I already had like a few synths and the drum machine and I was listening to uh, a lot of Tangerine Dream and Kraftwerk and then Klaus Schulz and all these, you know, and on the other side was all this kind of industrial music and new wave and still listening to loads of classical. So I, there was a lot of mix mash of loads of stuff. And then I had a rock band and we did a, a tour in, in Israel and um, we were doing a lot of this kind of weird electronic music. And it never kind of dawned still that I want to do film music. It was more about doing that. And then I think it was around 17 or so, I got an offer to do some programming with some synth. And I thought, yeah, great, I'll do it. And then it turns out there was somebody that I knew um, and that somebody was here in the UK. And the programming was for Jan Hammer on a TV show called The Chancer. Oh, wow. So I was using some synth, was Proteus, I think, and it was a Roland RX, uh, what was that? R, R7, I can't remember, R5 or R7, I can't remember those Roland black ones. So I did some programming on that, and then I watched it and I go, oh, wow, okay. Yeah, I can see, okay, I can, yeah. Something <laughs> Penny drop. <laughs> yeah, ching. okay, I can see, I can see. Yeah, now everything starts to click. But then I went, did the army thing which kind of disconnected me from music for about almost three years. And then just before my release, I started getting back into music. I mean, I always wanted to continue, but I didn't have, you, you know, you barely been at home and anything. So you didn't have time to even deal with music. You would listen, but you wouldn't have time to play or anything. But then towards the end, I started uh, re getting back into music and uh, I went and started uh, working as um because I wanted to know about the whole process of recording and how do you record, how do you produce, how do you get everything together. You know, I st it's stuff that I knew uh, earlier as a teen doing synth and all that. But then how do you, then how do I create this sound with a reverb? How do I do that? How do I do all this kind of stuff? So I started working as a, as a T-boy in a studio, sitting there, bringing them food and, you know, whatever they wanted. And you would see their what they're doing, sit in here. And then, and then I started doing live PA work as well. And, uh, and that's how I knew how to create certain sounds and record, you know, it's all, 
all the days of two inch tapes and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then uh, early 20s, it's when I joined with other bands and stuff. So, you know, you would know by then to go into a studio and record and I would, you know, we would do all of that. And then at some point I started doing theater work. So I would do, first I started just doing a bit of sound and creating sound design and you know, back then for theater, you would use like a reel to reel and you chop it up and you, you know, glue it and you play the effects and certain things. And then I remember if somebody says, oh, you do music, do you want to write the, the score for this play? So that kind of one thing led to another. Before I knew it, I started doing music for theater, which is a whole different animal to, to film. Yeah. Because it's always live and you always deal with actors. And but you're getting into that arena where you're soundtracking storytelling. Yeah, yeah, because up until then I would write, say, instrumental music but it, yeah. or, or electronic instrumental music. But it was just, you know, just stuff that you write for yourself. It wasn't even stuff that you write for a band or anything like that. It was just like, okay, I'm going to play and do this melody and write this small cue. And you think, oh, it's a, you know, instrumental like you would do with, you know, like, Tangerine Dream or, you know, any of these electronic bands would do. But then when I, after I did like the music for theater, I remember I, I got approached by somebody said, they were saying, um, I heard some of the work you did and I'm doing this film. Would you want to do the music for it? And um, I said, oh yeah, sure, great. It was a feature <laughs> film. You know? If only it was that easy nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> oh, do you want to do this? Oh yeah, why not? <laughs> well, it's, I mean, Israel is very small, especially back then uh, yeah. when they did films, there was no budget and they didn't really do shorts back in the day, at least when I started. And I think in Israel, you had maybe about four or five people who were at least in their late 40s, early 50s to 60s that did film scoring, proper film right. scoring. So up until then, film scoring, there was barely any film industry, actually. Mm. It was a big film industry during the 70s in Israel. But then like, like around the 80s and somewhere during the 90s, there wasn't really much of a film industry. They would do maybe three, four films a year back wow. then. And I was like, all of a sudden, this, you know, 20 year old, I was, uh, yeah, I was 22, you know, getting, somebody's asking me, do you want to do that? Mm. You know, there was no internet or anything that you can get like YouTube and information and all this knowledge about how you do this, unless you go to you went to Berkeley, you know, or any of those kind of things and study. But luckily, I managed to meet all these people that gave me advice and let me be a fly on the wall so I could learn how this whole thing. So, you know, I had Earl Agan giving me a click book so I know how things work and what's click is and, and frames. And I had a few chances to, with interpreter, when I met Morricone about talking about film music and I had uh, Gerald Freed that they with uh, um, I can't remember his name, but they came to record in Israel. So I was with them on the session, and then I remember going with them for dinner and their wife, and asking them all these questions and finding out <laughs> about all these, you know, these things. So that that was my bank of knowledge about how you score a film. Yeah. So when it came down to do my really first first film, I knew how the whole frame system would work. You know, they were still cutting on steam bags and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, I had my click book, although I, you know, didn't have an orchestra because there's no budget, and, <laughs> you know. So it was just me. Uh, I got like some opera singer and 
created all these sound and guitar players and I think I had like one oboe and like it was very small okay. and a lot of pads yeah. and stuff. So it was a semi-atmospheric-ish, pretend to be orchestral-ish score. Yeah. But it worked great. It becomes its own thing then, doesn't it? Yeah. And when you, you're, you're making do with what you have, but it, it creates something quite unique. Yeah. And, and funny enough, when I, if I listen to it today, I didn't realize how bad the pads on the, on the old <laughs> analog synths are out of tune. <laughs> I mean, yeah. the, the, the LFO is so out of tune, <laughs> you, oh, it's really bad. Okay. I mean, everything works, but you can tell it's so out of tune, like the, the, the old analog synth was still. Yeah. But that led to another movie, which I still did for free. But I said, yeah, at least give me some budget for more musicians. So they gave me, a, you know, a bigger budget to have some, you know, I think we had like a drummer and guitar, bass a couple of strings and some brass. So that got bigger. I've done that. And that then led me to another film that was uh, by a Russian director that moved to Israel and won the Cannes Award for Best Foreign Film at the time. Wow. And he did this kind of Russian-German-Israeli co-production. And I remember he came after the screening of one of the films and he approached me. And he said, I really like how you approach the music. I don't like the music, but I really like how you approach the, the effect of the music in the film. And the reason he didn't like the music, because it was that film with all the synth and the pads and, and it was electronic and he's, he was very old school. So he didn't like synth, mm -hmm. you know, he came from like, you write your theme on the piano and I like the theme, then I'll meet you on the scoring stage. So that's what he knew. That's how they worked. So he came, I really want you to do this film, really like how you approach the scoring process. And I remember that he goes like, so he likes my approach, but he doesn't like my music. And only then I, I realized that he didn't like was that it was electronic. Yeah. So he said, I want you to write me some themes on the piano. So I, I did like five or six themes on a, on a tape cassette. Then there would be somebody coming to pick it up and he would go and listen to it. And then calls me up and says, you know, I like theme number five. So that would be the theme for that. Uh, I like theme three, this would be theme for that. And then I'll get a, a, a cut of the, you know, of the film and watch the film with him. And then I said, okay, well, I'm going to try and mock it up. And he goes, what do you mean mocking it up? I said, oh, I'm going to do like a synth version. He says, no, no, we're going to record an orchestra in, in Moscow in a month. So we'll, you know, we'll hear it all there. And for me, it was like, well, okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, you know, whatever I, I wrote, I actually mocked it up for myself because yeah. make sure the parts work. And yeah. And I, it's the first time I've worked with an orchestra and, and an orchestrator. Uh, so I told, I told, and, I mean, the orchestra wasn't even an orchestra. It was more of a guy who studied composition and some sort of early orchestration course in uh, Berkeley. So I created a huge chart of all the instrument ranges because back then on the synth there was no instrument that had ranges or anything like that so i thought you know um i need to learn exactly which instrument does what and what instrument can do and i don't want to go off mm. you know off off the range um so i bought the uh, adler books of orchestration so that was my bible and then i did this we created this big chart uh, like a poster on a huge piece of paper that I stuck above my keyboard. So I know exactly, I look up, I know exactly which instrument is the range. 
so I don't go over it just in case. And um, yeah, I just started kind of writing the cues and mocked them up. And I remember I, it was even like, I said, well, it doesn't really want it. For me, it was very strange. I didn't want to hear, you know, anything because it was my first film. I didn't know. Wow. How do you work? You know, I didn't, you know, I, when I spoke to, to all these people about the process, it wasn't like, you know, it's not like today director comes in, he sits with you, you do the mock-up, yeah. you, you play them the stuff and it wasn't anything like that. You know, you play the stuff on the piano uh, and you might say, well, this would be the brass, this would be the thing and great, see you on the stage. But with this guy, I wasn't even coming to here because I, I didn't have a piano, I had some synth and stuff like that, but he didn't even come down to my parents' place to listen to the mock-ups or he didn't want me to play in the mock-ups or anything. You know, every time I would, you know, had the old time, I would call him up and I say, uh, I'd say, Leonid, you know, I've got some of these cues. I'm not really sure. You, in, do you want to hear? He said, no, we'll hear it on stage. And if we have to do something, we'll change it on the stage. So I go, okay. Wow. So yeah, we just, uh, I finished writing the whole thing. I called him up and said, uh, I got everything ready. God, I'm nervous. Uh, I'm nervous about the end of this story now. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we've done everything, and I remember, you know, I was, I was uh, twenty. I was twenty-three, and uh, he goes, uh, I, yeah. I called him up. I said, you know, that's you know, big orchestra. Never worked with an orchestra. I mean, I've been in Dixieland band, and I've seen concerts, yeah. and you know, I met Lalo Schifrin when he came to to Israel, and and spoke to him a few times, and seen all of that stuff perform and everything but like never you know recorded or anything i know to you know i know what you do in a studio and all that and this but as far as you know doing a whole film score to to the screen and the new different working with different musicians and then we had solo guitar players coming in to do all these kind of classical guitars and stuff but we notated everything had all everything printed out and was sitting with the with the copier literally five minutes we finished everything before the taxi came to pick us up to the airport to go to <laughs> moscow and um we had all the all the scores with us because we had to take everything with us it's not like they would print stuff for us and then we had to stop at the producer and load all the 35 mil prints of the film because we had to project that on the screen so we had to pick that and bring it with us because then they record the, the score onto the 35 mil to get it all mixed as well. So we had to take the seven reels with us. So we're all, you know, going to the airport and our thing is like, oh, if it goes through the x-ray machine, it will erase the, 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 <laughs> the 35 mil and what's going to be, you know, like, oh uh, my God. you know, we're just like 24, you know, I was 24 and, and the guy who uh, was helping with the orchestration, he was about 27 or so. <laughs> And we're like, you know, two kids going to Moscow by ourselves to meet. Uh, we met the director there and then the producer, some of the producer were there, but that's about it. So, you know, we're landing in Moscow, you know, nobody speaks English. And all of a sudden, you know, we're thinking, are we going to go through customs with, you know, all this film and all this stuff? And uh, all of a sudden, you know, we're, we're not even past custom. This guy comes up to us and goes, uh, you're Frank? I guess, yeah. Your bands, yeah, great. Okay, give me a passport. So we're like, okay. He goes, wait here. He goes in. Two seconds. He shows up with like two custom police, and they go, okay, let's go. You've got a special clearance. 
And we're like, not, they didn't even check our thing. They just took us straight out, boom, to the car. That's it. We're like, whoa, okay. I guess, you know, they're all paid and it's all, you know, uh, so they didn't check what we had or what we needed to bring in. It was all, I guess, arranged. And uh, yeah, we went, they took us to Mosfilm, which is that kind of like uh, studio facility where they do all the Russian films. And and back then they were doing all these, you know, a lot of these American films. So they were doing Tan- Tango and Cash. We're doing uh, with Her- with Harold uh, Fultimar, it was done. So they were all mixing there. And I saw them, they were like in the same hotel. So you had them and all these Italian directors who were doing all these films. And then, yeah, I remember the first time we, we got to the scoring stage, which was all American funded back then. So it's a really big scoring stage, SSL, the best mics, everything. And then you got the, uh, was the Moscow Radio Symphony, I think was the one who was doing the score. And nobody speaks English, so you got an interpreter. And, you know, you go introduce yourself on the podium and stuff. And, and the conductor, you know, is with a stopwatch, you know. So you say, this is the cue that he goes, okay, this would be here. We need to adapt this. And I remember we were going over the scores just to make sure everything is readable, playable and stuff. And he goes, he looks at some of the cues. He goes, okay, is this written for the horns? And I go, yeah, it's this kind of arpeggio. He goes, that's too fast for, for horn players to play such a thing. So it goes like, that will oh. never work. So I go, okay, mistake one, all right. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, okay, what, what can play it? So we said, well, we can do it with the flutes and this. So we started experimenting. Can we see, can we hear the flutes playing this part? So then we had to alter stuff on the stage. So it was a real kind of deep dive right into the deep end of mm-hmm. like how everything needs to work and be on the clock and how you have to be quick and and on your toes. So then we recorded what we can. Then come lunchtime, the director says, okay, this cue, I wanted to change this. So we'd go to the piano and we started scribbling stuff and my orchestra would start writing stuff to the parts and then they'll start writing it. And yeah, it was a real, you know, like a very, very super quick learning. But after that, it was less like, I know exactly what you need to do. Yeah. <laughs> that was like right at the deep end, yeah. That must have been so daunting. Yeah, and, and especially with the the lack of feedback, is just yeah, we'll we'll uh, sort it out when we get there. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. Once he heard the theme, everything was fine. The rest, yeah. it was like I don't like what these instruments are doing, or can we change this? And you would just go there at your lunch break, yeah, where the orchestra would break for lunch, and you would write stuff, or they'll say, okay, we're gonna record those tomorrow. So okay, so we would stay, rec- play stuff on the piano, and and okay, can we do this melody? Let's do this. Will this work? Yeah, okay, great. So mm. then they'll get their people in Mosfilm to rewrite uh, some of the pages for the players and then, you know, print them out. And uh, or actually, they won't even print it. They were doing it by hand. And, yeah. uh, you know, the copy department, they would just literally do it by hand. And then next day we'll come, record. Yeah, so it was it was very crazy. And then, you know, the last thing we wanted is like, yeah, go back to the hotel and this, we want to party. So we were taken around. <laughs> Moscow to all these bars and parties and stuff. So you go, you drink like crazy, and then you know, in, on the morning, you end up on the stage recording the orchestra. Wow. Yeah. Having Amazing. a lot of coffee and breakfast, and like, okay, yeah, we're ready, we're going. And it was the thing is, it was like winter, so it was like, like minus 20 <laughs> snow, and like, whoa, you know, I've never seen snow before. So 
That's really fascinating, though, that, you know, you've gone from the Dixie band where you've got all these moving parts around you um, and your kind of earliest experiences of arrangements, I suppose, and taking that into your band situation. And you end up on a scoring stage in Moscow. I know. Where, where you start your career, I, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny because I remember when he, after the screening, he said, you know, when he told me, oh, I like how you approach and I like this, he said, you know, my film is, it's going to have an orchestra. And mm. I'm like, oh, yeah. And he goes, you, you work with, with orchestra? I go, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I know exactly what to do. Oh, yeah. Say yes gonna, and we'll gonna figure be... it out afterwards. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Just yeah. say yes. Fantastic. Well, Frank, I'm asking each guest to leave an item that helped them become who they are today and a piece of advice for anyone wanting to get into the music industry. Would it be Adler's orchestration book or do you have something else that you would like to leave in the music room? Yeah, the Adler book of orchestration, I think uh, it's, it's one of the best, like when I started was one of the best tools. I mean, I think there's loads of orchestration books today. Mm. Even the Henry Mancini uh, book of orchestration is really cool, like how simple his stuff is uh but yeah i would say the adler book of orchestration as much as it's not updated but you know you had like the disc with the examples of music so yeah, yeah. i would leave Got that the fundamentals there exactly and that's yeah. what you, you need the fundamentals it's good that, to have those great well that goes in and anyone wanting to get into the music industry what would you advise from your formative years i think the best is just know your craft and know what you're weak at and then try and work on that. And I think the most important thing is just write, you know, doesn't matter what you write as long as you write. And I think the more you write, mm. the more you can establish a voice, which I think what's the most important thing I think is, and that's something that will always then make you stand up from the crowd, you know, is your voice. And I think that comes from nonstop writing. Yeah, yeah, you know, I love that. That was something that was advised to me when I uh, joined, well, I say joined the music industry, when I fell off a ledge and decided I'd, <laughs> I'd, do, I'd do some music. Yeah, they said, just write, even if you have nothing to write for. Exactly. Just keep writing, yeah. That's the thing, a lot of times, you know, it's funny because I moved studio now and, um, I found a lot of my Tascam tape decks, uh, hmm. tape cassettes, sorry, and like old dot tapes that uh, I, you know, I just recorded all these stuff at home back in the 80s and when I was doing all these instrumentals. And I listened to some of them and I can literally recognize chord <laughs> movements that I'm using, you know, 20 years after, yeah. 30 years after. And I've, even if I do stuff today and I write some stuff, Sometimes you think, oh, I'm just copying myself in a way, you know. Because but that's okay, never... isn't it? Because it's, yeah, it's and also I think yeah. for us, it's always hard to recognize our voice. It's always interesting when somebody else, oh, I can recognize this was you. I can recognize some other per person's score. You know, I can recognize yeah. some person's style. Mm -hmm. And I think for us ourselves, it's always it's a bit difficult. We always think, oh, maybe we're just like recycling our material. Yeah. But actually, I think we're not. Part of it is that's part of our voice. So the way we write stuff, the way we approach certain harmonies and certain melody movements and chord movements, it's part of our voice. And I think that comes from nonstop writing. Yeah. So when I listen to some of these old tapes, I go like, 
oh, that's exactly the chord movement I just did, you know, <laughs> in that track yeah. or in that cue, in that cue, you know, a couple of months ago. I think that's you know? absolutely spot on. Yeah, you're yeah. quite right. And knowing the difference between recycling something and showing your own style and voice, I think that's important to recognize as well, isn't it? Yeah, I agree. Totally agree. Fantastic. Frank Hilfman, composer. It has been so lovely chatting with you. Thank you for joining me in the music room. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you.